This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Joseph McQuaid about his new book, Genealogy of Terrorism, Colonial Law and the Origins of an Idea, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Dr. McQuaid is postdoctoral fellow in the Asian Institute at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. McQuaid. So our first question is always biographical. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in South Asian history? Sure. Thanks very much for uh, for having me on the program today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to having the opportunity to discuss my book with you. Um, so in terms of the first question, I grew up in Toronto um, and uh, have lived in Toronto for most of my life other than uh, basically my graduate studies. Um, So in terms of how I became interested in uh, South Asian history um, and in kind of the work that I'm currently doing, uh, that really was something that that was really kind of a change from my initial studies at, um, so I started my undergrad at University of Toronto and um, I had done Latin in high school. I was really interested in classics um, and was really intending to kind of go into um, either classics or medieval studies or something like that. Um, But I really ended up kind of shifting towards South Asian studies uh, through the uh, programs that I was doing um, through, um, you know, I took a course with uh, Ritu Birla, the introductory course on South Asia, and another one with uh, Nonika Datta, who is a visiting lecturer from Delhi. Um, and it was kind of, uh, those courses kind of coincided with other ones that I was doing on modern international affairs and uh, the global history of espionage. And it was kind of through that intersection um, that I started to become interested in topics like uh, the gutter movement that I ended up uh, studying. But another big thing was really the kind of um, what I found were really exciting methodological and theoretical approaches that I was encountering in uh, the classes that I was taking and looking at how um, scholarship on South Asia was really approaching history in ways that I found very uh, exciting and very uh, interesting. Um, and so it was kind of uh, it was a kind of kind of a combination of uh, those things, um, as well as kind of just a broader development, I guess, um, a broader kind of intellectual development uh, while I was uh, doing my studies. Great. 
Thank you. I didn't know all that, so that's that's fascinating. Um, could you talk about the genesis of this project and tell us what the main argument of the book is? Sure. Uh, so, like I mentioned, I first became interested in the Goddard movement actually as an undergrad um, at this kind of intersection between a variety of different courses that I was doing. And so this was what I uh, proposed for my master's project. And then kind of, um, so that was where this project really began um, during my master's work. And so at that time, I was at uh, Queen's University in Kingston, and I was working with uh, Amitav Chowdhury and Sandra Dan Otter and uh, looking at, um, so it was, you know, as kind of all master's project, or maybe I shouldn't say all speaking for myself as my master's project went, uh, <laughs> it was quite kind of loosely defined. And um, I wasn't really sure going into it exactly what I would be doing, but I kind of knew where my interests lay. And um, so during that project, uh, I really kind of uh, became interested in looking at not only the revolutionaries themselves, but the kind of uh, discourses surrounding the revolutionaries and the discourses surrounding terrorism. And I mean, as someone um, of this kind of millennial generation that, uh, you know, went to high school in kind of the aftermath of uh, the 9-11 attacks, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think that for many people uh, from this generation, this has been, you know, kind of a defining moment in terms of um, shaping our understanding of the world, um, obviously Absolutely. in a fairly, uh, you know, simple way at the time. And I mean, it, you know, that's so dependent on your positionality as well, obviously as kind of a white kid growing, a white guy growing up in Toronto, that was, you know, significantly less impactful for me than it would have been or than it was for so many other people, um, both in, uh, both in North America and around the world. Um, but it certainly, it did still, um, you know, dominate kind of, um, the, the news that I was seeing, um, and these kind of, uh, critiques of the global war on terror were such a big part of the kind of, um, of the political discussion and having grown up in Canada as well, there was also this kind of, um, the whole discussion surrounding going into Iraq, right. And Canada ultimately, uh, you know, Canada was part of the U S led mission in Afghanistan, but not in Iraq. Um, so within our own kind of national conversations, there were a lot of discussions happening, uh, surrounding this. So anyway, that's kind of a roundabout way of saying that I, you know, my interest in kind of um, the discursive construction of terrorism um, was both part of my academic work and separate from it in some, or not separate from it, but um, parallel to it in some ways, in terms of just how I was kind of growing up and engaging with current affairs. Um, and so in then looking at this colonial history, um, this was something that became interesting to me in terms of thinking about where this term actually comes from, what are the historical roots of this term. Um, and this was where in the uh, early research that I was doing for my master's project, I started to notice that there did seem to be a bit of a shift in the language that was happening from before the First World War uh, into then the interwar period, where the documents that I was looking at for the earlier period uh, didn't seem to be using the term terrorism as much as the later ones did. And so I kind of wondered whether this might be an important 
moment in the formation of this category. And so mm -hmm. that was what kind of motivated me to want to develop that further in my doctoral research. Fascinating. And yeah, in some of the later chapters, we'll get into, you know, why that shift took place mm -hmm. uh, when it did. Um, so in this book, you're exploring the emergence of the modern uh, concept of terrorism, as you just described, rather than using it as an analytical category yourself. Um, before we get into that discussion, I was wondering if we, we could begin by talking about how the term is used uh, today. Um, as I see it, politicians, uh, terror experts, and journalists uh, seem to describe or think of terrorism as being a political, uh, as being political violence uh, that is illegitimate because it is barbaric or uncivilized. These terms should obviously be in scare quotes um, and is committed by non-state actors, importantly. Um, how would you characterize how terrorism has been discussed both as a concept and a phenomenon in scholarly literature? Um, I'm also curious about whether you see terrorism to be a useful analytical category yourself. Sure. Uh, so definitely a lot of uh, really good points in there. Um, so uh, I'll start off with this kind of idea of political violence. Um, and this is definitely... Uh, an important element of it in terms of um, in terms of my own research and in terms of the larger discussions, this kind of uh, conversation surrounding the political nature of terrorism. And I know that uh, for many uh, scholars and uh, others will kind of use political violence as a alternative to terrorism um, as a way of, I think, kind of um, trying to shift the lens of analysis a bit away from this more kind of um, uh, from everything that's packed into the term terrorism. So the issue that I have with um, these kind of definitions that center the political nature of, uh, of so-called terrorism um, is that immediately it creates this question of, okay, who then decides what is political? Um, and this is really central to um, these colonial stories where a large part of the discourse surrounding terrorism is this attempt to depoliticize the actions of revolutionaries. And this fits into this um, kind of uh, question of uh, the so-called, you know, barbaric or uncivilized nature of terrorism. And this is a central tension. We'll discuss this, I'm sure, as we go along in terms of my fifth chapter, uh, but in terms of international, just in broader terms and thinking about uh, international approaches, this question of the politics of terrorism or the political nature of it has really been central to some of the tensions in terms of how to uh, construct it as a legal category, because violence that's political or activism that's political is protected. Um, you know, there are these kind of international uh, regulations that look to protect um, political actors, essentially, um, and prevent political repression. Um, so within the international conventions, there is uh, within kind of um, liberal states, at least, and I mean, we can, you know, maybe unpack that idea of liberalism later on as well. But um, within these states, there's this kind of focus on protecting political rights on the one hand. Um, and so from that standpoint, it is, uh, there is an incentive to depoliticize then the actions of uh, those who are kind of looking to subvert the state, while at the same time defining terrorism in political terms. And so this creates a really kind of uh, convoluted 
definitional problem where terrorism is defined as being political violence, but also a terrorist is by definition someone who uh, doesn't have the right of, say, political asylum, for example. Um, you know, the same kind of uh, the same kind of um, uh, proponents who would be, uh, you know, advocating for thinking about terrorism as political violence, I think would be very reluctant to say that someone like Osama bin Laden was entitled to political asylum in Afghanistan, right? I mean, that's kind of a non-starter. Um, and so, but that is a central problem in terms of defi- uh, this kind of definition. And the other element of it then is that um, in thinking about it in terms of a political definition, uh, so there's the question of kind of what's brought into that, but there's also the question of what's left out of that. And so if we think about, um, you know, for example, is misogyny a political ideology? Is racism a political ideology? I mean, in both cases, I would say yes, but is that the common, you know, would that be commonly accepted? And this is the problem that we're encountering uh, with things like the, uh, the so-called incels um, or others who kind of have these ideologies that don't actually fit into a kind of left, right, or, you know, religious, secular, kind of uh, these types of divisions that we are um, kind of view as being the um, the organizational kind of scheme for modern politics. Um, and so I think this can also be a problem because then if we say that uh, misogyny, for example, is something that is other than political, um, which, you know, this is what many say when we have these kind of uh, the killings, like the one that happened just in Toronto here um, a few years ago, uh, people dismiss the political nature of it. Um but this in some ways may be also kind of an artificial distinction uh, that is really uh, kind of um, shifting our gaze maybe away from where it should be. Um, and so in terms of how terrorism has been discussed um, and whether it's a useful analytical category, um, I think that it, I think it can be, but I think it most often is not. And what I mean by that is that I think that there is a specific type of activity uh, that we can loosely kind of organize within this label of terrorism that is really about, um, I actually think that in a way the old kind of 19th century category for it is actually more descriptive, propaganda by deed, I think is actually a better description of what that is. Um, And, you know, it's rare that I would kind of reach back to old 19th century (laughs) categories. But I actually think that propaganda by deed as kind of an organizational principle, does a decent job of describing what I would consider to be kind of what would be what would be terrorism. It's a type of um, a type of action, a type of violence that is targeting individuals or um, um, or kind of positions of authority or groups. Um, as a form of propaganda, so it's about the communication of the act rather than the physical result of the act itself. Um, so if someone, you know, commits a murder in private, the goal is to eliminate the individual that they are murdering. If someone commits one of these acts of, you know, propaganda by deed or terrorism, usually the goal isn't just to kill the individual targeted, but to send some sort of message 
Um, and again, we get into, you know, is this a political message, an ideological message, but it's about communicating a message through this act of essentially propaganda by deed. Um, so I think that if, you know, if terrorism, uh, if we could think of it more in those terms as kind of a, you know, not something that is confined to a specific group or ideology, but something that is about essentially committing propaganda by deed. Um, I think it could be useful analytically, um, but I think that we are uh, really quite a long way away from that being any kind of norm in terms of how it's defined. Um, And so I think that that does create problems with the use of it. Um, Even if we intend to use it that way, it does create problems in terms of how is it being uh, understood by those who we are uh, communicating with. Fascinating. And just to to let the listeners know that you have a really uh, good breakdown of how terrorism has been discussed in the in the literature in the introduction, I believe. Uh, there's, you know, you, you spend some time doing that. Um, I wasn't expecting you to talk about the 19th century being, uh, you know, arguably closer to what's happening, but that's that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it, but that that does make sense now that you say that. Um, so I was wondering if you could uh, give the listeners an idea of how you understand. Uh, colonial knowledge production about political violence in India. So here, I think you will be going back to the 19th century a little bit here. Um, perhaps you can do this by describing how we're engaging with, how you're engaging with uh, Ranajit Guha's idea of the pros of counterinsurgency. Sure. So Ranajit Guha's uh, essay on the pros of counterinsurgency uh, really was one of those kind of uh, texts that I mentioned kind of encountering as an undergrad that really um, I thought provided such an exciting lens for doing history. Um, I found it really kind of influential. Um, mm-hmm. And essentially what uh, Guha, I mean, there's a lot within it, but basically he's looking at how um, how the kind of historiography and how the archival sources that it's based on um, construct notions of insurgency. And so he kind of breaks this down in terms of different um, primary, secondary, and tertiary kind of uh, levels where the primary is very kind of immediate and is produced by people uh, kind of on the spot or responding to immediate uh, things going on. And then kind of secondary and tertiary becomes further removed and then uh, kind of takes on this um, uh, this pr- pretense in a way of kind of objectivity um, while still being essentially grounded in those kind of immediate concerns of that kind of initial rung of official discourse. Um, and so the pros of counterinsurgency is kind of the way that uh, insurgency is constructed by the official record and then how this um, official understanding translates into the suppositions of the historiography. And so in the, um, in an, one of the examples that I develop um, a bit in the book is this example of Thuggy, and there's a lot of scholarship that's been done on it. Um, but really what that scholarship has shown is that um, kind of the extent to which we need to unpack uh, the earlier historiography of Thuggy um, because so much of that is dependent on this very kind of literal reading of the colonial record. Um, and so this is kind of the one level of uh, Guha's work is in terms of unpacking 
uh, those official discourses and looking at that discourse itself as an objective study. Um, the other element of it that I found really interesting is that Guha talks about this idea of the political and the pre-political. And so for um, Guha, he argues that it's really only in the 20th century uh, that these colonial records and so kind of as a consequence, the historiography that followed um, starts to view this kind of um, starts to view this uh, anti-colonial agitation as being actual political agitation. And before this, it's seen as these kind of pre-political peasant revolts that are regarded as being almost like natural phenomena, like earthquake, like earthquakes, and not really actually motivated by any kind of um, agency or subjectivity on the part of uh, the rebels, uh, basically. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he, of course, challenges this to show that there, you know, unsurprisingly is, you know, a great deal of um, subjectivity and agency on the part of those who are rebelling. Um, and so I wanted to kind of unpack this further by also looking within the 20th century and looking at how those um, ideas of political versus uh, pre-political, or we could say in the later period, you know, apolitical, um, how, what kind of function those categories play. Um, and so this is kind of then returning to that point about, you know, who defines what constitutes something that is appropriately political. Um, and so this becomes a way of um, essentially determining the legitimacy of a group or a movement by kind of determining whether it fits into this liberal notion of politics, um, which the Indian National Congress, for example, does, despite the fact that it's you know still highly repressed uh, by the colonial government, um, it is still viewed as kind of fitting within this idea of politics, whereas these revolutionary organizations like Gadar or Yugantar um, or the Anushalan Samiti, uh, these are not. These are seen as being something that's kind of, uh, they literally describe them as being kind of outside of politics. Um, so those are kind of the main takeaways from Guha and then how I kind of looked to um, to work with those in the text. And then just briefly in terms of uh, colonial knowledge production, um, it is really just about think about kind of taking these insights in terms of uh, unpacking what we're finding within our historical sources um, and then thinking about how uh, these ideas or these forms of knowledge that are being produced within the archive are actually themselves forms of governance. And so again, using the example of Buggy, um, within this quote from uh, Sleeman that I provide, who is this kind of big so-called like, thug catcher in the uh, you know mid-19th uh, century, um, there is this passage where he specifically talks about how because of this India, the supposedly India-wide nature of this thug conspiracy that he, I mean, uh, yeah, we can get into that later, but um, it, because of the India-wide nature, it kind of requires that the colonial state will track them down in any territory that they're going to be found. And so essentially it is a justification for colonial expansion under the guise of this kind of uh, knowledge and hunting for these kind of subversive elements that are, you know, kind of lurking at the margins or lurking kind of uh, beyond the gaze of these um, of these officials. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Great. Thank you. No, that's that's really helpful. And yeah, I think your book does a really brilliant job in sort of laying out how, um, you know, the Colonial Archive constructed political violence or thought about political violence. Um, and the, your sort of engagement with Ranajit Guha and others was, was really helpful. Um, so you make it clear in both the introduction and the conclusion that you're using India as a case study to explore the emergence of the concept of terrorism. Um, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners why India is a rich site for studying the genealogy of terrorism as a legal or political category. Sure. And uh, so originally when I started the project, I had actually hoped to make it a kind of uh, comparative and connected history between India and Ireland, um, because there are some really rich sites of um, not just comparison, but connection as well. Um between these two colonial sites, but um, I did just find that the uh, the India material was so rich and so complex that that just really um, uh, I decided to really focus on India and then just trace some of these connections kind of as they came up in relation to India, but not really develop it much beyond that. Although I think that is definitely a um, an interesting site for um, you know for other scholars to develop further. But in terms of why India. Um, I mean, so like I say in the introduction, in kind of the most simple terms, it's the largest colony of the largest empire from the from this kind of period of high empire, um, from the kind of mid-19th to the mid-20th century. Um, India is this kind of linchpin of uh, the British Empire. Um, it is this central hub, really, um, or a sub-imperial center, as Thomas Metcalf calls it, um, which is kind of... Uh, its own kind of, um, not quite metropole, but its own kind of uh, center from which the uh, these imperial authorities then uh, extend further reach, both kind of military and legal, um, across really the Indian Ocean world. Um, and so this is uh, one area that makes India particularly rich, is that you can see whether it's in the transfer of uh, personnel. So uh, Michael Silvestri, for example, has shown how uh, this Calcutta police uh, officer, Charles Tigart, ended up also being deployed in Ireland, also deployed in Palestine, uh, based on his experience of police, policing revolutionaries in Bengal. Um, so there is this kind of uh, mobility of the officials. Um, there's another one uh, who I'm actually uh, looking at further for some uh, for a different project, um, but David Petrie, um, who is actually the one who's in charge of investigating the Delhi bomb plot in 1912, he ends up deployed to uh, Southeast Asia to manage the um, so-called Far Eastern kind of intelligence bureau. Uh, he then ends up actually becoming the um, one of the directors of MI5 uh, during the Second World War. So. There is, you know, India really is central as this kind of um, almost like an imperial training ground for many of these officials who then end up deployed elsewhere. Uh, so that's kind of one area. Another is um, the revolutionaries themselves have a very wide area of operations. You have uh, revolutionaries, I mean, as you know, very well from your own work uh, going as far afield as, you know, Japan and North America um, and really kind of 
all over the world and making connections um, with other revolutionaries uh, from Indochina, um, uh, from China itself, from the Philippines. So there are those kinds of connections as well. And then finally, there is this kind of um, the function of India as this sub-imperial center. And so you have um, the centrality of India to broader imperial security concerns um, because of the role of the Indian army and um, especially Sikh uh, police officers in places or police constables mainly um, in places like uh, Hong Kong, for example, or Shanghai um, or Singapore. Um, You know, you have the Singapore mutiny in uh, 1915 is largely a mutiny of Indian troops stationed in Singapore. And so there is also this centrality of India to broader imperial concerns of security. Um, And so I certainly think that there are, um, you know, a lot of case studies that could be done to show this kind of story. And I think that, you know, more work is certainly needed for looking at these different genealogies of terrorism. But um, India does provide a, um, I think, a particularly important one during this period in history. Absolutely. Yeah. And that came through in your book, uh, you know, very convincingly. Um, So in chapter one, you explore the, quote, ethereal figures that populated the colonial imaginary in British India during the 19th century, end quote namely thugs, pirates, and fanatics, uh, all in scare quotes, of course. Um, Could you explain who these ethereal figures were and why you chose to begin the story here? Sure. So the original, uh, the dissertation that this book is based on um, begins in uh, kind of uh, 1897 or 1905. It's a bit kind of within that uh, kind of period. Um, And so within the dissertation, I didn't really look at these figures, but I found that uh, for one thing, there was a lot of this language carrying through um, that I felt was important to, uh, to kind of trace this back a bit and see where these terms were coming from. So um, Mm -hmm. in terms of this kind of obsession, uh, you know, especially in early Bengal, there's this obsession with the, um, the kind of worship of Kali, um, in terms of uh, imperial officials are very concerned that the revolutionaries seem to be worshiping Kali, that they seem to be holding these secret initiation ceremonies. Um, and this really echoes the way that they are viewing Thuggy uh, during the earlier period. Um, in the same way, there are discussions of kind of the, uh, the religious fanaticism um, mm-hmm. of the revolutionaries. And so... Um, tracing back those terms, uh, both kind of through conversations with um, other scholars who I was discussing the work with, um, as well as kind of my own reading, um, I just felt that it was important to trace these categories back as well to understand the um, some of these prehistories of the category of terrorism, and especially because I think that this is really Um, you know, I was ultimately really happy that I developed that line of research because I think it really helped me actually ground the project more within the particularities of India, because there can be a temptation or a risk in studying, uh, you know, the history of a global concept like terrorism. There can be a temptation or a risk of kind of following those, uh, following that language into uh, yourself constructing a kind of global genealogy for it. And so, you know, on the one hand, there are these global connections, and this is something that's coming out uh, within this moment where there are, um, 
you know, these ideas are circulating across a variety of locations, but there is also a rootedness to the way that terrorism is described in India. And um, so this is why, um, you know, it's a genealogy rather than the genealogy. And this is why I really try to um, look closely at the 19th century and at the pirates and the thugs and the fanatics and dacoites and criminal tribes and these other uh, kind of legal and criminal categories that are um, being uh, looked at by colonial officials because these, I think, are, um, you know, it's really essential to understand the local ideas that are shaping how terrorism then goes on to be constructed in early 20th century Bengal, because these ideas of worship of Kali, for example, that's not coming from a kind of broader global conversation. That's coming from a very specific and rooted conversation regarding thuggy, um, well, at the same time, you do also have uh, the circulation of these things. Like I discussed how the um, the term thug, for example, ends up being used a lot in metropolitan Britain and especially in relation to Ireland. We know this from today as well, how, you know, the branding of people as thugs is this kind of branding um, that is itself, you know, highly racialized in uh, contemporary discourse. Um, but uh, so that's in terms of kind of uh, why I wanted to begin there. And then just in terms of what I mean by um, these ethereal figures or um, ethereal assassins, as I call them, is um, so these are not, you know, wholly imaginary categories. It's not, um, I don't go so far as uh, to say that, you know, the thugs and pirates and fanatics are totally kind of invented within the colonial um, imagination. I don't, uh, I don't think that that is the case. Um, but what it is, is it's this grouping together of a broad cluster of different types of, uh, you know, groups of bandits and brigands and uh, thieves and uh, demobilized retainers from the various colonial wars um, and privateers and all of these different uh, types of uh, types of figures who are operating at um, various degrees of distance or proximity to kind of the um, uh, the colonial state, um, but who are kind of beyond the control of it in terms of how they're operating. These are kind of the figures who then get um, essentially drawn together and then labeled with these much more kind of definitive categories of uh, thug or pirate. Um, and so in, in doing this, um, it's this kind of process of taking... Uh, this, you know, variety of, uh, you know, tangible figures who we can locate in the archive and who have their own, uh, you know, political subjectivities, um, but taking them and essentially turning them into this kind of uh, trope that then uh, basically flattens that diversity and then constructs this kind of figure um, that is an oppositional figure against whom um, officials are able to define uh, their own kind of um, authority, their own legitimacy, and their own uh, civilization in contrast to uh, the supposed kind of um, barbarism of the what are seen as really these kind of uh, primordial uh, categories of uh, criminals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I'm, I'm glad you ended with the, the primordial aspect of it because I think that also seems to be one of the reasons why um, – it might it, it as a reader it felt really good that you began there because with the subsequent chapter what we'll be discussing they seem very different types of um 
people and methods of political violence. Um, so in chapter two, you focus on the revolutionary violence in Bengal from the 1890s until 1913. Um, could you talk about both what the use of the bomb meant for Bengali revolutionaries, as well as how this tactic impacted the thinking of British colonial officials about revolutionary violence uh, in India? Sure. So the the Bengali revolutionaries really disrupt these uh, colonial understandings of violence in a number of ways. And uh, one of the key ones is their use of the bomb, which is very much this symbol of uh, of Western science at the time. Um, so it's really seen as this symbol of uh, Western technological and scientific superiority. And so the fact that the revolutionaries are able to not only use bombs against uh, colonial officials, but actually to manufacture their own, um, is this very kind of, um, this very interesting thing, which for the Bengalis, uh, for the Bengali revolutionaries, is this very, um, uh, uh, it kind of, uh, this encouraging thing that shows them that they are able to um, really kind of take on the colonial government on its own terms. And there's a lot of really interesting writings that are produced specifically about the bomb. Um, and so Hardial, for example, writes um, about the Delhi bomb uh, that's thrown against the Viceroy in 1912. Um, he writes how it is this kind of, uh, he calls it the Esperanto of revolution. Um, <laughs> he refers to it as this kind of um, democratizing force, essentially, that uh, because unlike firearms, which you need to be able to, um, you know, you need a lot more to manufacture, you know, um, a rifle than you actually do for a bomb. For the bombs that they're developing are quite simple. It's typically uh, something like a tobacco container um, with this mixture of uh, picric acid and um, some other chemicals, um, and then just basically load it with shrapnel, attach the detonator and throw it, and you have a, a homemade bomb. And so, um, this becomes very difficult for the um, colonial officials to police because it's it can be built with kind of homemade ingredients, um, and so unlike the uh, the use of rifles, which uh, rifles or revolvers, um, which are a bit easier to control, uh, the bomb is very much seen as something that can kind of emerge anywhere at any time, and so. Um, for the revolutionaries, this is something that's very inspiring. Um, and for the colonial officials, this is something that is very uh, kind of uh, troubling and unsettling because, um, and this is kind of the goal of many of the revolutionaries. Um, so again, with Hardayal's description of the bomb in Delhi, um, he specifically says that it actually doesn't matter that uh, the Viceroy Lord Hardinge uh, doesn't die in the bomb attack. He says that this is kind of irrelevant um, the point isn't actually, and again, this is where we get into this idea of, um, you know, propaganda by deed as a form of communication, is that the point of the Delhi bomb is not actually to kill Hardinge, who will, you know, be replaced with another official if he is killed. Um, although certainly, you know, they would have liked to have killed him. But what's really important is the fact that it destabilizes um, these notions of imperial security. And it uh, demonstrates the kind of... Um, that basically this idea that nowhere is safe. Um, and I think this is something that really carries through if we think about, um, you know, what makes uh, contemporary uh, terrorism very effective um, 
is that it really has a kind of um, an impact on the public imagination that is very disproportionate in relation to the actual number of casualties that it produces, right? Um, you know, people are, m- many people are much more, even in places like Canada or the US are more concerned about terrorism than they are about getting in a car accident when, you know, statistically there's not even a comparison there in terms of which is more likely to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. Um, so I was wondering if you could read the concluding sentence of uh, chapter three, the next chapter, and expand on the significance of the Great War for the story you're telling. Sure. Uh, so the uh, the concluding sentence is, uh, in fueling the expansion of both anti-colonial revolutionary networks and imperial laws of emergency, the First World War marked an important bridge between the pre-war language of political decoity and the construction of the new legal categories of terrorism and the terrorist that came to dominate interwar understandings of political violence. Um, and so, uh, so essentially what this chapter looks at is this, uh, the way that the First World War is used as an opportunity to expand imperial laws of emergency and so in terms of how this is kind of publicly um, uh, publicly justified by imperial officials, it is very much that the, this expansion of the laws of emergency is a necessity of the war. But when you look at the private correspondence, you see that this um, really isn't necessarily the case. There's a lot of discussion of kind of making sure that it looks like war measures, um, but there's very much a discussion that this is uh, designed to deal with uh, challenges that have been going on since before the war, which is this challenge of uh, the revolutionaries from Bengal and elsewhere. Um, And so I think that, um, you know, the First World War is really a kind of watershed moment in a number of ways. Um, And I mean, if we think about broader kind of history of colonial India. Um, the first It's after the First World War that we see the emergence of Gandhian mass nationalism, right? Um, and so this is, uh, this is already kind of recognized as an important moment from that standpoint. But in terms of how political violence is being kind of represented and understood, there's a lot that changes after the First World War. So there is the rise of, um, you know, the Gandhian movement, which really brings anti-colonialism into a uh, kind of a mass audience and a, turns it into a popular movement to an unprecedented degree, um, which inherently, I think, brings with it uh, some sense of legitimacy. Um, certainly, you know, it's not Gandhi himself and his movement is not viewed as legitimate by uh, many within the establishment, but there is increasingly this idea, I think, that Gandhi and the Indian National Congress is a force to be reckoned with and is um, has these aspirations that need to be at least um, kind of, uh, there needs to be at least the veneer of responding to them. And this is why we see, um, you know, these reforms that happen after the First World War, uh, this attempt to kind of give the appearance that India is giving, is being given um, more kind of, uh, more of a share in responsible government is kind of the term that's usually used rather than self-government, but still this kind of, uh, this kind of understanding that there is some legitimacy to these aspirations, especially after the massive contribution that India makes, uh, to Britain's victory in the first world war. Um, and so I think that 
in addition to this, then we also have this uh, Wilsonian declaration of self-determination, which he only intends for uh, European nations. Um, but this kind of language of self-determination then, of course, is um, something that is used very strategically by anti-colonial activists elsewhere. Um, in addition to this, we also have in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, um, which again is this uh, kind of uh, destabilizing force for the old, uh, the kind of world order that preceded the First World War. So there's a lot that's changing on the international landscape, as well as within the domestic Indian landscape. And so I think that where that all really comes together is this need to, um, to really depoliticize the actions of the revolutionaries. And so if we look at the pre-war language, um, there is actually, uh, you know, they are by definition defined as having political aspirations through this term of political decoity. Whereas moving into the interwar period, the term terrorism is able to strip away some of those politics. And if you look at, um, like in the uh, in the subsequent chapter as well, in chapter four, um, the discussions surrounding, uh, you know, the use of the term terrorism, we can see that there is really this attempt to move the conversation um, away from politics and into something else. And I think that this is really um, a product of uh, both that international and that uh, domestic context. Great, thank you. I know there was a lot to pack in there, so I appreciate <laughs> you you doing that all in one answer. Um, so in chapter four, you write, quote, the emergence of terrorism as the defining category to be used in subsequent legal and political pronouncements on the Indian revolutionary movement should thus be understood as a deliberate and calculated attempt on the part of the colonial officials to make emergency measures more palatable, both to the British Parliament back home and moderate opinion within India, end quote. Could you explain what you mean by this? And in doing so, also tell the listeners about the crucial archival find this argument is based on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this was, yeah, the archival find was definitely one of those really kind of uh, exciting moments for a researcher when you find uh, something that is kind of explicitly saying the thing that you've been trying to argue for two years. <laughs> um, and you just kind of think, okay, I can actually, people will believe me now. Um, yeah. So uh, that, uh, so I mean, as you know, but for listeners, that's um, in chapter four, I discussed this correspondence surrounding this new uh, criminal law amendment act in uh, Bengal, which is a response to attempts to uh, ship more uh, weapons into Bengal in 19. 2425. Um, and so within the discussion in the original draft of the kind of uh, the speech that is uh, justifying this new emergency law, um, the term terrorism actually isn't used at all. Um, but then when this is run by the Secretary of State uh, for approval, he actually underlines the term revolutionary, which is the term that's used and replaces it uh, with the term terrorism. Um, and so then the Governor General writes back to him and says, um, I actually think that the term revolutionary is more appropriate in the Indian context. Um, but basically, I'm willing to follow your lead on this, because I know that it will make this, um, you know, easier to sell uh, back home in Parliament, um, if we're, you know, describing it as terrorism versus as uh, revolution. Um, and so, I mean, I think that this is just a really, really interesting exchange. And it really shows um, that not only is this a discursive shift that's happening 
kind of subconsciously for all of those reasons that I described uh, just as a moment ago. Um, but there is actually an explicit, um, you know, this is something that officials are thinking about. They are thinking about the kind of language that they're using. Um, and there is this very deliberate desire to avoid um, the term revolution. And I mean, I think that the reason for this is uh, really connected to what I was saying before in terms of, uh, you know, you have on the one hand, this international communist movement um, that is kind of, um, uh, you know, radiating out from uh, Russia after 1917 and the kind of, um, you know, the broad popularity of this in a number of different locations. Uh, you also have these Wilsonian ideas of self-determination, which are popular in kind of uh, more liberal circles, even if they're still being, you know, very kind of uh, gatekeeping about who gets to have self-determination. Um, and so for me, I think that this just really demonstrated that that term revolution or revolutionary um, is still connected to um, a, uh, you know, it's, you can't, it's hard to conceive of a, of an apolitical revolution. Revolution <laughs> is inherently political. Whereas in kind of shifting towards terrorism, because of the ways in which terrorism has been constructed, because of the ways that it builds on um, these older kind of um, categories of these almost, you know, monstrous, sinister figures like the thug and the pirate, um, it is possible to conceive of apolitical terrorism. I mean, I would argue it's actually not, but for, um, you know, for many people, it is possible to construct this image of the terrorist as this kind of, um, you know, enemy of humanity is one of the ways that they're described. Um, someone who is not actually interested in political change, but just is kind of a murderer, essentially, who wants to kind of throw bombs and kill people. Um, and so this is a really important moment. Um, and it's really, you know, after this discussion and after this decision to brand the revolutionaries as terrorists, um, the term terrorist does become, you know, really the kind of de facto language in a lot of the official uh, discourses surrounding it in terms of public pronouncements and things like that. And you actually have uh, terrorism is um, there's the Terrorism Offenses Act in 1932, uh, which is the first one to explicitly use the term in the title. But when you look at the 1930s, especially, you really see that it's uh, terrorism is the way that these revolutionaries are being branded. And there is a lot of this kind of language of the um, of the apolitical nature of it. And also of this kind of attempt, uh, this interesting move that uh, is made within the colonial discussions to kind of um, almost align uh, the colonial officials with the nationalist politicians. And there's a bit of a kind of interesting interplay there where many of the nationalist politicians are also almost aligning themselves with the colonial state in some ways by kind of differentiating themselves from the so-called terrorists um, mm -hmm. as a way of kind of uh, enhancing the legitimacy of their own nationalist project by kind of uh, depoliticizing or delegitimizing uh, the violence of the kind of more radical revolutionary wing. Great. Thank you. Um, so I know we've been focusing primarily on British imaginings and attempts to suppress political violence in India, but you also talk about how Indian nationalists and revolutionaries challenged British colonial rhetoric, which sought to dismiss anti-colonial violence as terrorism or anarchism. In particular, I thought it was fascinating how figures like uh, Sachindranath Sanyal describe British actions in India as 
quote unquote, official terrorism, or Munindra Debrai Mahasai criticized what he called, quote unquote, police terrorism. Um, in a way, they seem to be challenging the official British definition definition of terrorism itself, uh, or or do you see it slightly differently? Yeah, I think that they uh, they certainly are. Sishindra Sanyal is a really interesting uh, figure. So in terms of his um, so his kind of main memoirs, which I don't uh, I don't look at in the book, but I'm currently working on, um, are uh, so he uses the term uh, krantikari to describe uh, the revolutionaries, and so this is a term that really means um, revolutionary. Like this is kind of how he's uh, he's very much seeing them as revolutionaries rather than um, as terrorists, um, and so he does this really interesting. Um, at the same time, though, there, we can still see some of the fluidity of the term because he isn't totally kind of, um, he doesn't totally dismiss the idea that he and his colleagues are conducting terrorism, but he really kind of um, looks to uh, describe it as a kind of counterterrorism, actually, which again, for in the current context, when we think of counterterrorism, it's the opposite. And so I think it yeah. is a really interesting rhetorical move that he does, but he essentially acknowledges to some extent that he uh, that they're committing terrorism, but he says that it's uh, not terrorism for terrorism's sake is one thing. He says that it is terrorism that is a response to, like you say, this official terrorism. Um, and so that actually what uh, him and the others are doing is doing this kind of uh, counter-terrorism, which is uh, kind of produced by necessity of responding to the terrorism of the officials. Um, so I think it is a really interesting kind of rhetorical inversion that he does there. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of Mahasai and others, um, these discussions of uh, police terrorism or official terrorism, um, yeah, this is something that we see with um, des descriptions of the Amritsar massacre, for example, um, are described as terrorism by uh, by many, um, both revolutionaries and others as well. Um, and so in terms of this uh, kind of shifting of terrorism onto the colonial state, this is something that we do also see happening from those who aren't part of the revolutionary movement too. Um, but they, uh, again, I think it kind of highlights the, um, the malleability of the term, and it's something that we can still see um, we can still see this today, like some of uh, bin Laden's speeches, for example, kind of describe uh, Al-Qaeda as kind of responding to what he refers to as American terrorism. Um, hmm. So I think this type of uh, kind of rhetorical move is still something that it, that we can see today. But um, it is definitely important to kind of note and emphasize that um at the time, this is very much fitting within broader conceptions of what the term means, because the earliest instances, and I don't actually really get into this because it kind of moves the conversation too much beyond India, but in terms of um, the 19th century and the earliest discussions of terrorism, terrorism usually is actually referring to violence by the state in many, uh, in many cases, if we're looking at uh, for example, the Irish or the Russians. Um, there are a lot of these discussions of uh, state terrorism. Um, whereas by the time we move then into uh, the 1930s, and I mean, you know, we'll discuss in a moment the International Convention, but uh, this idea, uh, it shifts towards being violence that's carried out by non-state actors. Um, but this really 
isn't, you know, within the original kind of uh, more malleable descriptions of the term, uh, there is a lot more of this kind of give and take between official terrorism and non-state terrorism. Um, And so in terms of people who would have been reading or hearing this, um, in terms of how the term is used, it would have had, I think, a greater degree of flexibility at the time uh, than what it has now, where we can still, you know, people will still talk about state terrorism. But if you say the word terrorism to, you know, the any kind of average person or most people, um, if you use this term, the immediate, the first thing they'll think of uh, will be non-state actors, even if they will also kind of make space for the potential for state terrorism as well. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, so in chapter five, you uh, focus on the discussions at the Convention for the Prevention and Punishment of Terrorism, a diplomatic conference hosted by the League of Nations. You write that for the government of India who were at the conference, uh, and perhaps you can briefly explain why they were present at this conference in the first place, um, the question of territory was crucial, particularly as it related to the French possession of Chandernagore. Um, Could you explain what this was all about to the listeners who may not be aware? Sure. Um, So on the first point, uh, India's relationship to to the League of Nations is really its own uh, fascinating history. Um, And I do actually have an article on that for those who are uh, interested not to be too, uh, too self-promoting, but uh, <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> uh, but uh, so, I mean that I would encourage those who are interested though, to read that as well as work by um, people like Stephen Legg who have, um, who have looked at this because it really is a fascinating history in and of itself, but essentially India is the only non-self-governing member state of the League of Nations. And it, um, It's a result, basically, of uh, India's kind of uh, performance during the First World War, its participation in earlier conferences. um, And so it kind of ends up um, almost accidentally um, as being a um, a member of the League of Nations. Although, I mean, when I say accidentally, accidentally on the part of kind of uh, the more official side of thing, there is actually um, a, uh, a strong effort by some Indian liberals to really make sure that India ends up as a member of the League of Nations, because this is seen as a way of really demonstrating the kind of legitimacy and viability of India as a nation state itself. Um, But so in terms of that history, in and of itself, it's very interesting because uh, India then is um, able to send representatives to Geneva to meet with the uh, the representatives of all of these independent nation states. Um, but the representatives are chosen from among the, uh, the government of India, which is the colonial government, um, as well as from the princely states, which are these semi-autonomous, um, you know, monarchies, uh, that are, uh, connected to the British through treaty that make up about a third of the territory of the subcontinent at the time. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so they're able to participate in these conventions um, while at the same time not actually really having any kind of real representative basis in terms of the Indian population. And so this question of territory um, connects to the fact that India, um, so at the time there are these princely states, they make up about a third of the territory of the Indian subcontinent. They're semi-autonomous, but still kind of uh, under broader British sovereignty. Um, In addition to this, there are also these older enclaves of other European powers. Um, So the French have enclaves at uh, Chandranagore and Pondicherry. Um, The Portuguese have an enclave at Goa. Um, 
And so this French possession, especially in Chandranagore, is a huge headache to uh, colonial officials because this is really used as a um, almost like a kind of Switzerland to kind of uh, smuggle uh, literature and individuals and weapons um, into British India through this French territory where there are you know different laws and different priorities applying. Um, and so this is a base that's used by many of the revolutionaries. It's a small slice of territory within uh, Bengal, not that far from Calcutta. And so this is really what the, uh, the International Convention, the uh, British Indian officials really want to uh, use this convention to create an international framework for making sure that they can also put more pressure on the French authorities to actually control the circulation of individuals and goods and literature in and out of Chandranagore. Um, and so this is really where, uh, so their main contribution to the convention is to uh, push for this uh, clause to be entered that deals with the uh, regulation of firearms. It ends up being kind of irrelevant because then there's an exemption made for colonial territories. So although France, um, although it would apply to France, it doesn't actually apply to Chandranagore anyway. Um, <laughs> but this is kind of the, uh, this is the concern that they have. And I think it really speaks to the fact that, well, at the same time, you have this emergence of increasingly kind of territorially bounded uh, states at this time and this organization of territory with stricter borders, it's also highly permeable because of these kind of um, idiosyncrasies of geography and of, uh, of geopolitics, really, where um, these older kind of colonial enclaves are still um, allowed to persist and you still have these um, kind of varying degrees of sovereignty exercised uh, across the British Empire through um, you know, crown colonies, dominion territories, um, semi-autonomous princely states. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, heterogeneity within the, this kind of uh, political organization. And so in terms of regulating um, and policing international terrorism, uh, these types of uh, idiosyncrasies are something that are um, very useful to the revolutionaries and very kind of um, troubling for uh, colonial officials. Great, thank you. Um, so staying with this chapter, um, I was wondering if you could read a short short excerpt um, which summarizes the main argument about this conference. It seems to me that what you're describing here uh, perfectly matches how terrorism operates uh, in our contemporary times. Sure. So the quote is, uh, the purpose of this convention was not simply to prevent and punish a set of politically motivated crimes rather to shore up international authority with the articulation of a new threat that could be described in universally intelligible terms through the category of terrorism. In this way, terrorism can be understood not as a universal category, but as a universalizable trope capable of transcending national boundaries, precisely because of the ease with which it could be applied to describe a wide range of acts of anti-state political violence. Um, and so what I'm getting at here is this... Um, like we spoke about briefly earlier, this kind of um, this idea of terrorism as a crime carried out by non-state actors, which again it needs to be emphasized, was not the original definition, um, and is kind of a uh, it's replacing these older ideas of terrorism that uh, really frames it in terms of uh, state terrorism, and so what this is 
doing is kind of um, first within the kind of definitions that are put forward by the League of Nations, it makes it impossible for a state to carry out terrorism, um, which is in and of itself interesting. It becomes inherently um, a uh, action carried out by non-state actors and inherently an action Mm -hmm. that is carried out against the state. So the definition that is um, agreed upon in 1937 is literally violence that is directed um, against the state. And so uh, when I talk about this idea of a universalizable, the universalizability of it, um, this is kind of what I'm getting at, that in each of these states that are participating, um, so uh, in Romania, um, in uh, Czechoslovakia at the time, uh, in British India, in other places, in each case, there are specific domestic concerns in terms of why those representatives are there and are wanting to do something about this category of terrorism. Um, And this cuts across the board because even the Soviet Union is participating in these discussions, interestingly enough. Um, The Soviet Union has kind of moved more into the international fold since about 1934 and is actually participating in these discussions. So this is something that kind of transcends ideology in that sense. This isn't, you know, terrorism as a, uh, as some, uh, as a label that's assigned to left-wing groups by people on the right or assigned to right-wing groups by people on the left. It's something that is um, a kind of catch-all bundle that can be used um, by really any of these states that are participating in the international uh, state system as a way of describing uh, threats to their authority within their own territory. Um, And so if we think of it in contemporary terms with the war on terror, um, this is something that really does carry through with the way that um, this language of the global war on terror has been turned into um, essentially a justification for um, repressing Muslims within pretty much any given country by, uh, you know, linking them to this broader global war on terror. And so we can see this language whether it is in uh, Kashmir in India, whether it's in Xinjiang in China, uh, whether it is in Rakhine State with the Rohingya in Myanmar, um, whether it's in Chechnya uh, for the Russians. So uh, there is this ability to use this kind of flexible language of terrorism. Um, you know, if we, if we break down any of those conflicts or um, any of those, you know, not even conflicts in some cases, but more kind of um, human rights abuses or acts of genocide, um, there are very contingent and very particular rooted local histories that are creating the context that are um, that we're seeing. Um, but by using this term terrorism, um, these uh, various state actors like the Myanmar military, for example, are able to um, kind of deracinate the conflict in a way. Um, so rather than actually engage with the local politics of relations between the Rohingya and Rakhine populations and the very kind of specific and grounded histories there, it becomes possible to simply say, well, the Rohingya are complicit in these acts of terrorism that makes them part of this global kind of jihadist, um, you know, ethereal, uh, movement or, um, you know, ideology. And so they then become, uh, you can then, uh, it's almost like a paint by numbers kind of thing. You can slot them into this discourse, um, and then adopt these repressive policies as a result. Great. Thank you. Um, so before we end 
the conversation, I was wondering if you could, and you've already done this quite a bit in this conversation, but I was wondering if you could reflect on contemporary discussions about the concept of terrorism in the uh, in the era of the global war on terror. Um, I think there's a debate about whether it is better to decouple terrorism from race and religion. For instance, there are calls to name white supremacist violence as terrorism, or alternatively to ditch the term completely, either because it wouldn't work or because regardless of who it is referring to, it just enables further state uh, repression and doesn't address underlying causes of political violence. Uh, I'm curious what your take on this is. Sure. Thank you for the question, um, because it's really something that I um, I do think about a lot. And it's, um, I think it is actually a very, um, it's kind of tricky to say what the, um, what the solution is, because so on the one hand, um, you know, the argument for this kind of uh, decoupling or this um, almost democratization of the term or whatever you want to call it, a kind of labeling white supremacy as terrorism, for example. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. I think that it, um, you know, given that the term terrorism uh, is part of the kind of, kind of public discourse, um, I've been encouraged to see uh, this translate into policy in Canada, for example, with the labeling of the Proud Boys as a terrorist organization. Um, I mean, I think that, um, you know, when I started this research back in 2012, 2013, um, these are the kinds of conversations that uh, I was seeing among scholars they weren't the kinds of conversations that I was really seeing within kind of a broad lay public discourse. Um, and so I think that that kind of, I think there is some critical thought being exercised among um, quite a general audience really now um, in terms of thinking about what, who do we call a terrorist? And I think that that conversation is a very valuable one. And I think that that degree of reflexivity that's been brought and that has kind of developed just in the last eight years or so. Um, I think that that is positive. Um, at the same time, I know that for um, kind of on the other hand and on the other side of things, um, the concern is really that, um, you know, if we kind of, if what happens with that is that we then keep this kind of very uncritically examined term of terrorism, but just throw more groups into it, um, this is not necessarily uh, making the kind of progress that we would hope for. Um, you know, after the Capitol riots, there was a lot of discourse among kind of progressive voices and stuff saying like, um, you know, we should, you know, send the rioters to Guantanamo and stuff like that. And this is not, I think, a productive way to go with it, because, um, like you said, it does, in a way, um, it, form, it it does, in a way, legitimize the, um, the kind of uncritical ways in which the term has been used in the past by kind of saying, okay, well, we're recognizing now, you know, um, it it doesn't really go into actually a critique of the way terrorism has been used to then just say, well, we can just broaden, you know, and say that more people are terrorists, but still really be advocating the same kinds of policies that have been used before, because now, you know, we don't like this group, um, of, you know, white supremacists, which, I mean, of course we don't, we shouldn't. And, you know, uh, it, it is, so this is kind of the tension then of, you know, um, 
on the one hand, there has been this, you know, long, long disparity in terms of how, um, you know, someone like a Dylan Roof can commit an act that if it had been carried out by a Muslim would just a hundred percent have been labeled as an act of terrorism, uh, can commit that and then can be, uh, but can, you know, only be kind of brought up on the, uh, comparatively kind of lesser charges of things like murder or, um, even manslaughter in some cases. Um, so, you know, the idea of applying more rigor to those cases and actually taking seriously, um, the threat of white supremacy, which is, um, you know, according to the FBI, which is hardly a kind of sort, you know, a hotbed of bleeding heart leftists, um, <laughs> is the number one threat, you know, in the U S at the moment, um, in terms of, uh, danger. And over the last 20 years, really, if you exclude, uh, you know, nine 11, which is admittedly a big exclusion, but because it's, uh, a huge number of casualties in a very short period of time. If you look at the longer run in terms of numbers of attacks and casualties from that and that kind of thing, um, I mean, it's really white supremacy and kind of uh, anti-government militias that are the biggest public danger. And so bringing them into these discussions of political violence is, uh, is I think, very important and is very worthwhile. Um, but I, at the same time, I do definitely take the kind of note of those who are cautious about how in doing so, we need to really think through and make sure that we are um, not using this as a way of uh, just kind of not really reflecting further and not really actually critically examining the term, but simply assuming that because now we are also applying it to white supremacists, that that means that the term now is this kind of, you know, equitable and useful Mm -hmm. term rather Mm -hmm. than continuing the conversations of unpacking it um, and kind of better understanding where it comes from historically. Great. Thank you so much. I know that was outside the scope of your book, but I really appreciate you reflecting on that. No, Um, that's fine. And uh, yeah, your book is so great. I really uh, hope a lot of people will sort of get it and 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 read it and discuss it. Um, but I've taken so much of your time. Uh, before I let you leave, could you tell us about what you're working on now? You've kind of hinted at uh, some of the projects you're working on, but I'm curious what your yeah um, your subsequent projects are. Yeah, absolutely. So I have two um, two major projects that I'm working on now. Um, so the one is actually going to be a uh, biography of Rush Bihari Bose. Um, who oh, fascinating! I've, uh, as you know, you know he pops up a lot within the book, and I have a separate article on him. But um, yeah, so I am working on a. Um, a short biography of uh, him and looking at kind of situating him within larger uh, global trends and kind of broader histories of imperial intelligence and uh, kind of diplomatic relationship with Japan. Um, And then the uh, the other thing that I'm uh, interested in is kind of um, pursuing the research of the current book further kind of into the post-colonial period um, and looking at the uh, the evolution of the term terrorism um, within uh, the kind of uh, official discourses of uh, post-colonial India and uh, Burma um, and looking at how, um, especially how the post-colonial governments deal with uh, separatist movements along um, the kind of shared, that shared borderland area um, so how they deal with separatist movements among, uh, for example, the Naga and the Kachin, 
um, and thinking about, um, you know, the, uh, the colonial roots of these um, ideas, as well as kind of their, uh, their reinvention or rearticulation uh, within this, uh, within the post-colonial period, and then kind of reaching up to uh, the present day. Great. Both those projects sound fascinating. I would love to read them uh, when they're published. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it.